Live from Chicago, this is Dan Prof sitting in for Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast, tonight featuring commentary by Professor Jason Hill, Krista McQuarrie's Chicago Tribune, and WVON Radio's Mays Jackson. Our program tonight coming from our new home studio, the Paul and Angel Harvey Radio Center at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in downtown Chicago. Our toll-free lines are now open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. Our new email is beyondthebeltway2019 at gmail.com. If you want to tweet Bruce a comment, it's at Dumo, D-U-M-O. You can also find this program and past programs at beyondthebeltway.com and on our BTB Facebook page and now on YouTube. Pleasure to be sitting in for Bruce with this distinguished panel, and let's get right into it. Uh, start with Mays Jackson, who's to my left in so many ways. <laughs> uh, Mays, is uh, Joe Biden literally bleeding out of the Democrat can uh, primary for president? That or he's becoming senile out in front of our eyes. I think that uh, Joe, Bi Joe Biden is really starting to look um, like a very non-positive candidate, as well as some of the things he's been saying sound extremely crazy. Uh, how about if Barack Obama was assassinated? Could you imagine it? I think that has been, oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's a good it was, one. Well, I mean, I think in our community, particularly in the black community, that was like one of the biggest fears. I mean, I remember him getting sworn in and we were like, geez, he's going to get killed right away. And here is Here's his his co his uh his friend saying his vice president saying could you imagine it I think Joe Biden is just assumed or presumed uh, the black vote but I think he's just not doing very well but, but well but he's doing very well with the black vote for now which is why he's still the front runner the question is do you see any of the other I guess tier one candidates I mean really think about this the Iowa caucus is February third. So when, when you back out the holidays, we're like 90 like serious campaign days away from the Iowa caucus. So the field is sort of ossified at this point, I would argue, despite some of the, the rumors about, oh, there's a white knight that's uh, waiting off stage. Uh, if, if Joe Biden continues to dominate the black vote, he continues to be a force in that primary. Do you see any other candidate that could peel off some of his black support? Uh not currently, actually. I don't. I think that Joe Biden gets the benefit. I think he'll have to have a tremendous flub, um, but I don't think that there's anybody. Elizabeth Warren is, what is she claiming? I don't know what she claims to be right now, um, but she is very to the left. And I think, and who's the other one? I, I'm sorry. I'm freezing. Uh, yeah, the, the, who's the other? The, the other, the, there's top, there's three. Bernie Sanders. Oh, Bernie, Bernie, Sanders. Bernie Kamala, Kamala, Mayor Pete. <laughs> Yeah, but do you think that uh, Kamala, I think Kamala is taking the biggest fall. I think that uh, Mayor Pete, you know, he's still very inquisitive to me. I still find him curious. But I think Joe Biden has the black vote locked, even though he will say some crazy things. Kristen, uh, what about uh, where the energy is in this race? The energy, if you measure by crowd size, is all with Elizabeth Warren. Well, and who has who jogs on the stage the most and dances around? Certainly Elizabeth Warren wins the award for that. But I mean, the problem with Elizabeth Warren is it's just Hillary Clinton part two. And a, lo a lot of people in the Democratic Party see her as the most problematic. They want whoever the front runner is going to be, even if he says goofy things, even if he has a track record like Joe Biden does of saying politically incorrect things, he is still viewed as most likely and 
um, most capable of toppling Donald Trump. So I still see him as the front runner despite all of these missteps. Jason Hill, uh, author also of the book, We Have Overcome an Immigrant's Letter to America. Uh, Jason, uh, Professor DePaul, um, what's the sense of the zeitgeist on campus, since that's an incubator and one of, of socialism, number one, and number two, uh, the place where you have a core constituency for the Democrat Party? What's the flavor on campus in terms of uh, presidential contenders? Flavor on campus is free, freeness and socialism. I'm very, very worried about what I see going on, not just at DePaul, but when I travel around the country giving lectures, that um, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders um, are winning the students because what they're doing is they're not necessarily using socialism in the way that we understand socialism. They're using the term democratic socialism, which for these students mean free health care, free college tuition, free this, free that. And um, I see if a case in which Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and the far left can really galvanize these students, uh, those of us who are, such as myself, who are independent conservatives are in serious trouble because these students are not thinking about a sort of taxations that's going to be leveled on them once they start working and th their inability to start their small businesses. They're just thinking right now, I deserve a free college education rather than sue my universities for selling me a worthless degree that can't get me a job. I'm entitled to debt relief from the American taxpayers. And so I see, I see two camps. I see people like um, Bernie Sanders and the, the far left, and I see people like, um, who were we talking about before? Elizabeth Warren, Elizabeth Warren. And Joe, before, Biden. Joe Biden. Joe Biden, who are both so intellectually out of focus that they're basically running to defeat Donald Trump, but not really standing for anything. The Democratic Party lost its soul a long time ago and stands for nothing except one thing to beat Donald well, Trump. Well, Kristen, your colleague at the Chicago Tribune, John Cass, wrote an interesting column, especially coming from a conservative perspective, essentially uh, handicapping for the Democrats their presidential primary, saying uh, Elizabeth Warren should get out of the race and support Bernie Sanders because Elizabeth Warren could actually beat Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders can't. And the interesting thing with the rise of Warren, it has not accompanied really a drop for Bernie. It's accompanied a a diminution of the rest of the field. So you've got Biden and Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. So to Jason's point, Bernie and Elizabeth, it seems to be a competition for who's the authentic socialist and whoever is most authentic perhaps will be the nominee. Well, and she's also, I mean, for those who are seriously paying attention, she does come to the table with, you know, like they joke about how she has a white paper on every position. So I do think in the debates that we've seen so far, she comes across as really credible and someone who, if matched against, you know, the podium from Donald Trump in, in once we get into the general election season, would be, you know, very formidable. I still think she's just, she's too much of the, of the framework of a Hillary Clinton. She's going to turn off um, too much of that middle space between the between the two um, parties. And so I would think Biden and Bernie are actually more suitable. They're going to continue to be at front runner status, and she may actually be the one who slips. Is there anybody else who's not in the top tier that you think has, still has a, pot a potential to pierce through and make a run at this? Any of the, uh, the I mean, the, really the three names, Bernie, Biden, and Warren, throw in maybe a Kamala, throw in maybe a Mayor Pete, anybody else? No. No, and I mean, Kamala really just, I mean, she started sinking after 
a poor debate performance. Um, there is a lot of time and a, and a debate coming up, I think, next week where all of them, all of the frontrunners are going to be on the stage at the same time. That That's a chance for her to really reclaim some of that footing that she lost. And so I wouldn't count her out. You know, I think that Kamala actually, um, she started out as kind of a rising star, but wound, what wound up happening was that um, her base, she counted on her base as the black community, and then her, her criminal justice record started to come to haunt her, and I think you've seen her start to get undercut there as well. We'll pick up uh, the conversation right there on criminal justice uh, after we come back. Again, phone lines open, 800-723-8289. Dan Proft in for Bruce Dumont on this edition of Beyond the Beltway. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Dan Prof sitting in for Bruce Dumont on this edition of Beyond the Beltway. And uh, we've got people coming to us from around the country, including Rogers, Arkansas on KURM AM 790. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we were talking about the Democrat race for the nominee for President of the United States. And Mays, where we left it was you talking about part of Kamala's fall from grace after her uh, relatively good first debate performance, she sort of really marginalized herself almost back into the second tier at this point, is uh, people started looking at her record as attorney general and they didn't like uh, some of what was contained in that record when it came to matters of criminal justice, explain. So Kamala Harris made her career as a prosecutor, and then she rose to be the attorney general. And I think one of the, the bases of Kamala Harris's support was the black community, i.e. she counted on black women. And not women. just Willie Brown. <laughs> well, see, but all Hi of up. the... Let me tell you that Willie Brown story. A lot of black men saw that and were like... Hey, you, you played the game, but that's a whole other story. I think what <laughs> happened with Kamala Harris is two things. I think that there is right now a the ADOS movement, which is the American Descendants of Slavery, which is a very strict black group that is seeking to exclude minority and be focused on blacks that were descendants of slaves. Um, they questioned her her actual credibility as a black person. And then the other part was... As a prosecutor, she had a record of that right now we're in a space where we're trying to reverse criminal. There's this criminal justice reform debate that's going on. And here she was a person that made her career locking people up. 
And as that started to come out, and she was very aggressive in prosecuting, particularly black men in California, may have locked up more than Republicans. Now she's out here in our neighborhood saying, hey, I want to be on the team. And, and essentially, she she started losing her credibility in that space. Well, and, that, and that's sort of what Tulsi Gabbard got her on in that, that second debate. And she was really uh, nonplussed in terms of responding to it. She looked very bad. But Jason, two things may, uh, may you said I want to get your reaction to. One... Kamala Harris is not a authentic black American. Uh, number two, the idea, I mean, there's sort of the irony of this, right? Uh, Kamala Harris being hoist by her own identity politics petar, right? She did her job. She was enforcing the law, you could argue, in most of these cases, perhaps uh, virtually all of the cases, as both a prosecutor and then as attorney general. But because the uh, composition of those who were prosecuted doesn't fit with the left's narrative. Now she's being held to account for it, which she would be doing if she was going after somebody not named Kamala Harris. So is that is that all fair? Play? Is that just all all's fair in love and war? Well, it's it's part of the, the game of politics, but it's also quite hypocritical. I mean, look, the first thing is that Kamala Harris. I don't know anywhere in America where she can step out and not be identified as black. She looks morphologically by most American standards to be a black woman. She's, her father's Jamaican uh, and her mother is East Indian. She calls, she says, as she said any number of times, as a black woman, yada, yada, yada. And culturally, uh, I think, culturally, yeah, I think she, she was raised as a black woman. And I think that uh, any movement to divest her of that identity is foolhardy and, and ridiculous. The second thing about her prosecutorial record, I think, is that Americans have a very heightened sense of justice. And if the predominant number of people who are being prosecuted under the reign of prosecutor Kamala Harris happens to be black men, then so be it. They're the ones who are committing the crimes. No Ooh. one is putting a gun in their hands. No one is putting a knife in their hands. They're committing a disproportionate number of the crimes. And if that's the case, it's a tragic state of affairs, but she has a job to prosecute those who commit crimes. What about that, Mace? I don't even know how to dignify that with a comment. Well, but, I mean, but, but, so in Chicago, we know that 80% plus of the murder victims are black men and 80% plus of the perpetrators are black men. I think that if, if you look at murder anywhere, crimes are committed in, in proximity. So wherever you live, the people that are most likely to commit the crimes against you are going to be those people. I think when you look at Chicago, I think you, when I think if you look at most of our communities, and I don't want to make a lot of excuses, but I do believe that there is a heightened sense of people prosecute extra things that happen in our community are prose prosecuted at a much higher rate and it is a there is a bias as it comes to crimes that are committed by black folks but i don't really want to get too far into that because i think that's a whole nother topic well well do you think so, but i mean in terms of how kamala is being held to account do you think uh, the criticisms leveled against her with respect to her record are fair yes i think the criticism i mean i think that Quite frankly, on our show every day, or not every day, but when we discuss her, we discuss the fact that she was... Right now, we are in a place where everything is about criminal justice reform. It is about getting people out who may have been disproportionately impacted by a variety of different things, prosecutors, etc. And then here you have this woman who is coming into our community, into the black community, as the black candidate. And she was one of the main perpetrators, 
and of the things that we are trying to reverse right now. And I think she she would like to pretend that that didn't happen. But when you talk about she was harder on black men because it's popular to lock up black guys. You can do that easy and no one's going to complain. It's interesting, Kristen, too, that uh, Kamala, the, the focus is on her race, not her gender. Uh, so you've got sort of Elizabeth Warren, you mentioned earlier, Elizabeth Warren, sort of Hillary Clinton redux. There's stories about how they're sort of copacetic. They've been talking, Elizabeth Warren and Hillary Clinton, to maybe pick up the mantle that Hillary Clinton wanted to carry, what? attempted to carry in 2016. Um, and uh, Elizabeth Warren, the last thing she wants to talk about is race, of course. Uh, but but it, how that is different, though. Uh, it's, it's gender when it's Elizabeth Warren, but it's race, not gender, when it's Kamala. Well, and with, the, with this very now progressive left-leaning party um, pushing for all these issues with the squad in Washington, D.C., look at the nominees that they're bubbling to the surface, two white guys and a white woman. All over 70. Yes. So, I mean, I think that's sort of interesting, too. Um, this is the party of identity politics, and they're not playing by the rules if they're not giving proper attention to the Kamalas, to Cory Booker, to this you know, pretty diverse slate of candidates they have. But I want to get back to this point about um, perpetrate, about her record, um, Kamala's record. In Chicago, my frame of reference is our Cook County State's Attorney, who I don't think anyone would argue is not black. She's a black woman. She is still prosecuting, you know, and she's a criminal justice reformer. She is still prosecuting more um, black males. And I think in this whole conversation, it's the victims of these crimes who often get ignored. And most of the victims of crime in Chicago are black. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I just, I kind of ascribe to the philosophy that our new black mayor has talked about. What black mayor? Which is... In Chicago? <laughs> is she a really a black... We don't count her as a black mayor. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll, <laughs> Lori Life is not black either. She, she's, she's black, but she identifies as LGBT before she identifies as black. See, okay. this, is, this is the whole intersectionality point I'm getting to. And you, you, you helped me beautifully. Thank you so much. So, yeah, right, so we so, have a who does she know black mayor. So I thought, it, you, yeah. I thought it was... I thought it was the higher the intersectionality score, the better. And now, but in certain cases, the higher, the worse... Because there's one from the other. There's a rank order. There I mean, is a rank order. But, and right but, now, blacks are at the bottom of the rank order. It goes but LGBT. She is, but her point is, <laughs> she goes in, in, in. It goes insanity at the top. <laughs> and then. You know, yeah. the sort of. She, she just has. She is a criminal justice reformer. She is part of the police misconduct task force. She is going to be enforcing this big consent decree into Chicago to bring the police department more in line mm -hmm. and more compassionate and empathetic to the black community. And yet. She is the only person out there right now talking about being a voice for the victims of crime and speaking up for, you know, senior citizens who are, as she described, pinned in their homes in certain communities on the west side. What the victims of crime matter in these cases is, too. Is she only one, or is that what the media chooses to highlight when they talk to to the different people? I think Kim uh, Fox, quite frankly, is is very in tune with the victims as well as the the people that are committing the crimes. Quite frankly, in in our community, a lot of times those people live right next door to each other, so there is a very unique dynamic when it comes to it. I don't know. I I just I I just feel like as it relates to um, the pro right now with criminal justice reform, I think when you go to Khalif Browder, when you look at um, What's the other one that's going on right now? Khalif Browder, Jay-Z's got another movie going on. Uh, but the uh, what's going on with even with the NFL and the social justice yeah. and all of it, it is this whole mentality in the world right now about trying to get it right and how the police have done wrong by our community. 
and it permeates everything that's happening. And Kamala Harris, Kamala, Kamala Harris, uh, was the face of that the of the prosecutors in the old days. I'll tell you. I, 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 hold hold there, right, Jason. I want to get to that, but and we'll get to your comment, Jason. But let's get to the phone lines too. Uh, Kevin, who joins us from Austin, Texas, on KLBG five ninety. Kevin, you're on Beyond the Beltway. Yeah, it's uh, KLBJ and uh, 590 in Austin. Uh, my comment is, you know, you're talking about how just because you're African-American, you're not going to get the, the African-American home. Now, do you see any movement or thing in the ground as far as the Blexit movement that uh, Candace Owens is kind of pushing and, and a lot of other commercials? Hmm. Conservatives are talking about it. Thanks for the call, Kevin. Appreciate it. The, the Blexit movement, blacks yeah, leaving I'm, I'm the, familiar. the Democrat Party. What do you say, Mays? I, I don't think that Candace is the person, but there is a sense of what the heck are we, what, you can't say it, Donald Trump said it kind of a way like, what do you have to lose? But I think as we look around, um, the black community is starting to do the math and they're saying to themselves, man, what really did we get out of it? And I think you saw it play out in Hillary Clinton's not election. It wasn't that black folks uh, turned and voted Republican, but there was no reason for them to vote. Four for million black, uh, four million fewer black votes for Hillary than Barack Obama. Because there was nothing, and so I'm, I in my mind, I can't vote Republican because that is the ultimate sin. But if I hear nothing from the Democrat, I'm going to sit out. And I think that what you're seeing now is everywhere, black folks are looking and they're taking taking account and they're seeing that it's not adding up with the Democratic Party. We're going to talk about uh, police, which has been called uh, after the break, but uh, Dan Prop sitting in for Bruce Dumont on this edition of Beyond the Beltway. Thank you for joining us. Keeping in touch with family and friends or reaching public safety officials can be challenging during power outages. If telecom networks are affected by severe weather or other conditions, the FCC recommends following these guidelines. Call 911 only when necessary and limit non-emergency calls. Avoid repetitive redialing to minimize network congestion. Try texting if a call doesn't go through. Conserve battery power. Switch mobile phones and devices to power-saving modes and turn off when not in use. If evacuated, forward landline calls to your cell phone if possible. If you're using your car to charge cell phones or listen to news on the car radio, be aware that carbon monoxide emissions can be deadly in an enclosed space such as a garage. Remember, always seek shelter in dangerous conditions and follow directions from public safety officials. For more info, Go to FCC.gov slash emergency. Bruce Dumont on this edition of Beyond the Beltway. Uh, my panelists include from going to my left. From All right. Maze Jackson, who's the morning drive guy at WVON Radio in Chicago. Uh, Maze, uh, give us uh, the 30-second pitch on your show. Hey, catch us every morning, Monday through Friday, 6 to 9, 1690 a.m. You can watch us on Facebook Live on w, on the WVON page. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MazeJack, that's at M-A-Z-J-A-C. Um, and then you can also watch, uh, well, you can go to the Maze Jackson page again on Facebook, Monday through Friday. We ask the question every morning, Dan, what's in it for the black people? I know you do. <laughs> All right. Jason Hill is a philosophy professor at DePaul University. He's uh, 
noted author, including uh, the book I mentioned earlier in the show, We Have Overcome an Immigrant's Letter to America. Jason, uh, your background and, and what prompted you, to, what prompts some of your writings, including that book? I was born and raised in Jamaica, came to America at 20 to pursue a PhD and become a philosopher. And the book is, uh, I'm, a, I'm a true patriot. The book explains why America is the greatest republic on the face of the earth, the greatest country that has ever existed why the American dream is still alive, why black people are part of that American dream, why they're not outside the ambit of the American dream, but are co-creators and creators of the American dream, that people like Ta-Nehisi Coates is one of the greatest enemies to this great republic of ours because he spreads nefarious lies about this great country that has been hospitable to myself and other immigrants and continues to cater to black Americans in their, in their aspiration for the American dream. All right. And Kristen McQuarrie, Chicago Tribune editorial board member and columnist. Kristen? Yes. Um, I publish a column on Tuesdays in the Chicago Tribune, and I write two to three editorials per week. And we are a right-leaning, small government, free enterprise um, editorial board. That's been the philosophy of the Chicago Tribune since its inception. And it's sort of a a tough road sometimes in the city of Chicago, which is obviously left-leaning and controlled by Democrats and now all branches of state government in Illinois. So we were talking uh, about criminal justice in the context of the presidential campaign. And, um, you know, local crime public safety issues were part of the 2016 campaign, too. They'll be part of it again because so much of that is tied up in race and the the, the status of inner cities. And it's not just uh, Trump's brouhaha with Elijah Cummings that we were talking about during the break. And Jason, you wanted to make a point on this. I want to make a point. And it's something that I've written about when I wrote an open letter to President Trump to send troops into Chicago. We face a national security, series of national security threats in this country where our great cities are overrun by gangs. And the only way I think to solve this problem is to place some of these cities into political receivership the way some of these rogue states ought to have their sovereignty stripped away and be placed in political receivership. I'm talking about boots on the ground, the dispension of uh, comitatus, and to break up these gangs. We know where these gangs are. We know where the gang members live. But we have so... We have so spoiled the name of the police and the police force and law enforcement in general in this country and divested them of their capacity to enforce the rule of law, that I think that only something like placing some of these cities like parts of Chicago, like parts of Baltimore, and I want to get to San Francisco, which also should be placed in political receivership. Or at least their poop patrol needs to be expanded. One of the, one of the, <laughs> at least, at minimum. Something, something. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting you make that point because, Kristen, this is a point that other politicians have made. Office holders have previously called for the National Guard to be sent to Chicago, white and black politicians in the city. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've had this debate on the editorial board for years, and I actually told my editors at one time, let me, let me take a crack at this and see if I, we can make a case for this without sounding crazy, right? Because nobody in the black community wants to see military-style vehicles rolling through their neighborhood. No mayor wants to give that sort of impression that they've lost that much control over the city. But you can, you will talk to National Guardsmen who say, this is our area of expertise. If you mm-hmm. did want to just set up sort of checkpoints around neighborhoods you know are problematic, again, it's to preserve the safety of the people who live there who are not committing crimes. There are ways to do that or to bring in troops to relieve more uh, police officers from, from desk duty. Do I think this is a realistic solution? No, I don't. But I am I'm 
disturbed every day that we have become so numb in this city to the loss of life. And if you think about the concentric circles, that one loss of life and all of the tragedy that that, that creates and the shattering of these neighborhoods and the kids who are trying to attend school, who are homeless, who have dealt with all this tragedy, it bothers me that even a solution such as that gets brushed aside. Oh, no, no, that's, that's too much. That's too dramatic. What's more dramatic than 2016 having 700 homicides in the city of Chicago? Exactly. So. What, what, what about um, the point that Jason made about the attitude the left has towards police? It's largely coming from the left, if we're just being honest about it, and, and besmirching the police so much so that if you believe the Ferguson effect is real, it's being doubled down on by these presidential candidates. And in California, Governor Gavin Newsom signed a law last week uh, rescinding a law that was on the books that made it a crime to not offer assistance to a police officer who requested assistance. He said this was a, rel a relic of, the sl uh, of slavery. It actually was a law that was passed in 1872, to be technical about it. But regardless, we're not in that era anymore. The idea of you shouldn't be have to render aid to a police officer who asks you for aid, and that could expose you to criminal sanction, rescinding that law. Was that a good move by Gavin Newsom? And does that further or uh, does, it, does, it, does it enhance the relationship between the citizen and police, which I, I think we all want to be a solid relationship if we're interested in in safety and peace, uh, or does it further deteriorate that relationship, Maze? So a couple things. Um, I think it. I think the law, but I think you have to understand the perspective of a person who, when the red lights and the blue lights flash behind them, think that that could be the end of their life. All right. So I think when I see the police officers, and I am a law-abiding citizen, but if I ever get pulled over by, I happen to drive a car that attracts police. Uh, every time I am pulled over by... <laughs> what do you mean by that? I drive a Porsche Panamera, a, a very late model. There's very few of them. So the presumption oftentimes when a police officer still to this day pulls me over uh -huh. is, what you doing with this car? Right? So I got my hands. I'm 10 and 2. I'm officer. I will not move until you tell me I can move, etc. Until you have that fear running through your body, knowing that you are a law-abiding citizen, you are not those people that we're talking about right here, but he can't make the distinction, then you have a different perspective. Um, I think the concept of, I think it's interesting that our thought process when it comes to dealing with the issues of the inner city is to deploy the National Guard as compared to <laughs> deploying educators. So if I, in Chicago, if one in four black kids goes to an underperforming, failing school, and that's the norm, if we can look at all of these scenarios and we can fight to protect everything but the kids, the building, the air conditioning, and we wonder why we have the outcomes. I would like to see us invest more in the in the people as compared to investing in bringing police and tanks, et cetera. I just think that that's the simplistic solution. Well, 40 percent of the top 50 cities in this country have high school graduation rates hovering about hovering about 50 percent. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a Chicago problem. It's an urban center problem, as we know, the crime is an urban, largely an urban center problem. Some of these other social ills are as well. And so what, what, what's the money solution? I mean, as you know, Mays, spending in Chicago. Reparations. 
Okay. Give us our reparations. All right. I think, but I think before you give the reparations, I think we'd have to have some uh, financial literacy training uh, or figure out what does reparations look like. I mean, the fact of the matter is, in our community, money is not is not something that we've been taught, and so that's why oftentimes you see the reverse, right, where we invest more in in depreciating assets as compared to. Uh, appreciating assets. But I do think that reparations, whether it came in cash as well as education, whereas in every person, every black person that was a descendant of a slave could go to college, a state institution for free, which then gives them a head start or at least a jump on getting out of that or a trade school. If there was the opportunity to, again, redress some of the ills of the past, I think reparations is where you start that What about reparations? I mean, that, that was a hot topic in the Democrat uh, primary for president with Reparation H, Kamala Harris, <laughs> and, uh, and some of the others, uh, sort of Bobby O'Rourke signed on to reparations to some of the others, I think. Um, but it's, it's sort of uh, dissipated. I don't think it's dissipated. I think that it has dissipated from the, um, from the presidential debates. But I do think when you look around the country, you start to see all of these things percolating, and there is conversation in multiple states regarding this this reparations. And I think the fact that it even got I, there would have been a time where I would have said there was there's no way that America would even talk about reparations for Black people. But it has made it to the national debate, and I think it'll it'll revive itself once this thing boils. Jason, down. you think that's a good idea? Reparations for to promote? Uh, I get maybe not to promote racial healing. Maybe that's not what you're promoting, Mace. No. But uh, you're just promoting justice for those descendants of slaves. Is that a way to deliver justice? I think the reparative moment came in 1964 with the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which ended legal discrimination against blacks and, and granted them full equality before the law. I think the government should get the hell out of education. There should be a complete separation, not just of state and economics, but of state and education. Give blacks the chance to be in charge of their communities. After all, the procreative choices that people make are their responsibilities. I don't see why when someone decides to have a child that that responsibility should be passed on to society. When you decide to have a child, your reproductive choice is yours. And your responsibility to educate your child belongs to you. Give black people back their communities as it was in pre-segregation during the segregation era when we had literacy rates among blacks up to 94%. That's, we're going to have to hold it right there. The discussion is getting lively. It's good. <laughs> Call in 1-800-723-8289. Dan Prop sitting in for Bruce Dumont on this edition of Beyond the Beltway. Hi, I'm Ryan Sandberg. And I want to tell you about Miracle, the musical, inspired by the 2016 champion Chicago Cubs. It's one of the best productions I have ever seen. Now playing at the Royal George Theater. Do not miss it. Millions estimate their benefits online so they can do what they want offline. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 
Welcome back to Beyond the Beltway. Dan Prop sitting in for Bruce Dumont on this edition. Thanks to uh, those listening to us in Monterey Salinas on KIONAM1460. Appreciate that. We were talking about, uh, well, a, a lot of issues wrapped up into a discussion about our urban centers, our big cities, uh, race, education, economic opportunity. Uh, Mays Jackson was promoting the notion of reparations. Let's take a couple calls on the topic. Uh, Jorge in El Paso, listening on KTSM AM 890, joins us. Jorge, thanks for being with us. Thank you for taking my call. I wanted to comment on uh, the difficult situations that exist in the educational system because it may spark up the pretension that uh, the problem may actually exist with Chicago schools. And I wonder if he has thought that um, aspects of uh, what it is to uh, learn in today's um, environment uh, might um, reflect on the emotionalism that children are subjected to, then that um, results in a, in a form of segregation because teachers, they're um, encouraged to uh, offer their uh, students love and um, affection. And sometimes the teachers, they're not capable of offering that affection and love for each and every student. So some students who are exposed to that, they might feel segregated and become indifferent and subsequently problems to you call up as you saw from it. I wonder if Mace has any uh, comment with respect to that. Can you help me a so, little bit so more Jorge, with the question? So, so you're saying, so you're saying there's, there's not enough sort of emotional connection between teacher and student in the classroom? No, I'm saying that the idea that there should be, uh, may, um, not be proper, they might be misplaced um, in that, um, in fact, the teacher is there to uh, teach the children uh, individually and uh, professionally. And um, when the teacher feels obligated because uh, it's expected of the teacher that um, by way oh, of um, showing that uh, yeah, I section, see. Break it down for me real quick. Thank you, Jorge. Situations develop from it. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So I, my, my understanding of what Jorge is saying is the idea of a teacher is the job is to impart a love of learning into children. But yet the job, much like a police officer, has expanded to be sort of a self-esteem coach and uh, just get beyond the idea of teaching kids to read, write, and do arithmetic. I think that we've always seen uh, teachers that have taken some interest in kids, whether it was the teacher's pet or something along those lines. But the bulk of the responsibility is the parent to get the child to the school ready to learn. I think the challenge becomes, does the parent know how to get the child ready to go to school to be prepared to learn. I don't think that all the burden should be on the teacher, but I do think the teacher, we have to have some accountability. I think they want salary, uh, perks, mm. all of the good stuff. I want to see outcomes. It seems like there's a demand for outcomes on the north side of Chicago, but there are not always the same demands on the south side or in yeah. the, on the lower or on the lower end of the spectrum. Jason, I, I remember a speech I attended uh, uh, that Condi Rice gave. This is a couple of years ago here in Chicago, and this is sort of an amazing statement considering she teaches at Stanford. But she said the biggest problem she has with her students at Stanford is none of them can write. And their inability to communicate on paper is reflective of sort of a muddled thinking, their inability to sort of logically uh, follow a thread that is rooted in reason and evidence. I wonder if you find that at DePaul and what that says about what's happening at K through 12 level, because, you know, these are the best and the brightest that are bubbling up to DePaul and Stanford and other universities. It's not just DePaul. Yeah. The professoriate oh, okay. in this country is corrupt. And when you have, I've written extensively on this in my book, when you have the professoriate 
and the professoriate is infiltrating into K through 12 and indoctrinating these teachers, declaring war on Western civilization, stating something like the creation of reason and logic are the constructs of imperialistic white men who created these tools to oppress black people or people of color. When you have an out, outright declaration against Western civilization, which is taking place in our universities, when students are not taught to think critically because critical thinking is a language game foisted by people in power, when you have what's taking place in the humanities, which is cultural Marxists, used in the classroom as dumping grounds for socializing and re-socializing young people into Marxist ideology, demonizing Western civilization, demonizing the very tools that we need to educate people. After all, what is the purpose of an education? The purpose of an education is at the end of graduating from a class is to be a self-governing, autonomous human being who can navigate one's way through life. What we're doing is we're crippling students, we're making them hyper-dependent, we're prolonging adolescence way into people's 20s, and we are divesting students of the opportunity to critically think for themselves because what's happening in the universities and through K through 12 is nothing more than these places are functioning as indoctrination centers. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Uh, Bonnie in Crown Point, Indiana, uh, watching on the website, uh, beyondthebeltway.com, has a question. Bonnie, thanks for joining us. Hi, um, I, in, I, w I grew up and lived in Chicago for my first 50 years of my life. And I'm a little intrigued by the reparations concept because um, when I was in high school in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, I had uh, quite a few black children in my class. And you know what? They all graduated from high school. Uh, none of them had children out of wedlock. And uh, most of them had fathers and husbands who worked and, and mothers who cared for them. And so things were actually to be better then than they are now. So Thanks. if we were doing reparations, that, that should have happened a long time ago. And my question that, that a lot of people ask is, well, who should pay this? Because like my family came here. Yeah, Tracy, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to leave it there. I take your point and we'll take it up next hour. Dan Prof. Sitting in for Bruce Dumont on this edition of Beyond the Beltway. Sandberg, and I want to tell you about Miracle, the musical, inspired by the 2016 champion Chicago Cubs. It's one of the best productions I have ever seen. Now playing at the Royal George Theater. Do not miss it. Millions estimate their benefits online so they can do what they want offline. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online 
at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Keeping in touch with family and friends or reaching public safety officials can be challenging during power outages. If telecom networks are affected by severe weather or other conditions, the FCC recommends following these guidelines. Call 911 only when necessary and limit non-emergency calls. Avoid repetitive redialing to minimize network congestion. Try texting if a call doesn't go through. Conserve battery power. Switch mobile phones and devices to power-saving modes and turn off when not in use. If evacuated, forward landline calls to your cell phone if possible. If you're using your car to charge cell phones or listen to news on the car radio, be aware that carbon monoxide emissions can be deadly in an enclosed space such as a garage. Remember, always seek shelter in dangerous conditions and follow directions from public safety officials. For more info, go to FCC.gov emergency. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Dan Prof sitting in for Bruce Dumont on this edition of Beyond the Beltway. Pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to sit in for my friend Bruce, longtime friend. And we have got a great panel. We've been discussing a range of topics. Uh, Maze Jackson, morning man on WVON Radio in Chicago. Jason Hill is a philosophy professor at DePaul, the author of the book, We Have Overcome, An Immigrant's Letter to America. And Kristen McQuarrie is a Chicago Tribune editorial board member and columnist. Thank you all for being here as well. We were talking about violence in a uh, last hour in an inner city context uh, and a lot of racial component to it. Uh, there's another sort of gun violence that we have to talk about uh, as it uh, unfortunately visited us again last weekend in Odessa, Texas, West Texas really, since that was sort of a mobile crime spree as we know. Uh, and that is mass shootings with Congress coming back from their uh, Labor Day recess, August recess. Uh, we know that there's sort of four buckets of laws that are going to be proposed in addition to those that have been proposed. Uh, gun buybacks or forced buybacks if Bobby O'Rourke has his way of uh, sport rifles. Uh, bans, outright bans on particular rifles, high capacity magazines. In Joe Biden's case, if a magazine 
has a capacity of more than one bullet. Uh, anything not a musket, Joe Biden apparently <laughs> is planning on banning. Uh, probably unbeknownst to him, but that's what he said. Uh, so we've got buybacks, we've got bans, and we've got red flag laws as well being proposed. Uh, and I wanted to get your take on what you think the politics of this is, what you think uh, a proper response to the recent uh, spate of mass shootings should be, and uh, you should we all be held hostage? I mean, this is to me, this is a little bit like uh, like the reparations argument in the sense that it's sort of guilt driven. Should we all be uh, should we all be driven to? Uh, and you can compare and contrast my my analogy, Maze. But um, should we all be held captive to suburban women when it comes to gun policy in this country? Because that's really who's driving this. If we're being honest, no, aren't, I think aren't we? it's I think it's aren't white. We? No, I think it's white guys with guns that are crazy. No, 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 no. that are driving this. Okay. Really? Okay. I mean, I, I think fundamentally, I mean. We have a scenario right now where we are continually seeing the same person doing the same thing. We got these white guys doing these mass shootings. Mm -hmm. um, so you're in the morning Joe camp that if they, these were Muslims committing these mass shootings, there'd be a different response. You don't think it would be? I think that I think that if there were Muslims doing this, I think if there were black people doing this, if there was any other group doing this, you'd have militias lining up protecting, pretend, pre preparing to protect their families and protecting their lives. But really? Well, it's funny because, uh, I mean, like, actually, if there was only a real-world example <laughs> of this, what, what, oh, yeah, um, Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, San Bernardino, Fort Hood, the D.C. Sniper. When those incidents happened, could you name a conservative politician or pundit who said we should do any of the things that are being proposed now? No, because they want that was not in their self-interest. Well, They'd want to protect their guns. Well, well, but so that my point is to say the response from conservatives would be no different because we've seen the response from conservatives when the profile of the shooter has been different and the response has been the same. I can agree with that. Well, I think you just said something that if black people were doing this, I've said that our cities are under, uh, we, face an, we face massive national security threats in some of our great cities in this country. Mass shootings take place every weekend in Chicago. Right. Gang members in this, in, in, in this country conduct, cumulatively speaking, mass shootings. There are more black people killed by black people in this country and Hispanic gang members who kill innocent victims than there are white mass shooters killing people if you add up the numbers. Well, right, but, here, but here's the difference. This is my suburban women point. Um, let's just be real honest, if we could. Um, <laughs> The mass shootings in Chicago aren't happening where white suburban women live, right. and the um, and the reparations argument, because I'm not I'm not sticking <laughs> with this, uh, is being driven not by Democrat politicians. It's being driven by the white suburban women that they are pandering to with the "hate has no home here" signs in their yards. Their guilt, the champagne socialist guilt, the cultural Marxists in the suburbs. That's who's driving these policies, whether it's the reparations argument or it's um, guns are icky, guns are scary, let's ban them because I don't want, and this is understandable, of course, I don't want what happened in some in school or a theater or just on the streets of West Texas to happen in my community. That's scary because they think it could happen there. They don't think what happens every weekend in Chicago could happen in their neighborhoods. So it's different, isn't it? 
Yes. Um, I mean, your original question was, what do we do when Congress comes back right. about mass shootings? And I don't know what the answer is to that. I don't. I think red flag laws make sense. If you look at um, characteristics across the board for a lot of these shooters, regardless of their race and their um, and where they lived and where they came from, they were isolated. They were outsiders. There were people around them who um, were aware that they were becoming more destabilized. So I think red flag laws, as long as they, of course, allow people to protest to the courts or provide due process. Right. right. I think I think that makes sense. And you and I have had this argument. I think given that state laws vary on background checks and time limits, that some sort of a federal policy needs to be in place. That's the other one. So background checks, bans, buybacks, and red flag laws. Those are the four buckets I didn't mention, the background checks. Yeah, I mean, you can't, we are not living in the same era that we did even 10 or 20 years ago, where you do have people buying guns online. You do have them. We've documented it at the Chicago Tribune. You have a U.S. attorney now for the Northern District um, charging people with federal crimes for having mass amounts of weapons in their homes and basically like selling them out of their garages. So it it is happening. I don't think you can deny that. Maybe you would argue that laws that are in place just need to be held and to account. But I would not be opposed to federal background checks. Uh, Join us in the conversation. 1-800-723-8289. 1-800-723-8289 is the number if you have a question or a comment that you'd like to make. Uh, Just going back to things, characteristics in common with the mass shooters. Now, this is very difficult business because these are vexing legal and cultural questions, as we're we're somewhat talking about. And the problem is every characteristic you have in common, and these have been studied going back 50 years to 1966, University of Texas, you have a whole bunch of people that have those characteristics who've never committed a crime, right? So it's not just so easy to to say mental ill, mentally ill, not just lonely. Um, And here's another one, but this is prevalent in almost every case you have a less than ideal family situation at home. Mm-hmm. You do not have a uh, stable, intact two-parent family. Uh, we see a lot of uh, the mass shooters do not have fathers, uh, fathers in the home, fathers in their lives. And even in some cases where they were, like the El Paso shooter a couple of weeks ago, you know, he, uh, in, in his own memoir, admitted that he was an addict for 40 years. Do I detect sympathy here? Uh, Do I detect any sympathy here? Sympathy for... No, I'm not... No, I'm not... There's no sympathy. There's no sympathy for mass murders. There's no sympathy for sociopathic activity. The question is, if you want to get to an understanding of why this happens and how it can be prevented, then you have to talk about culture as well as legal. You can't. You can ban all the things you want to ban. If you're not addressing the underlying behavior, then you're not solving the problem. That, that's that's my point, and we'll pick up that point after this. Dan Prof sitting in for Bruce Dumont on this edition of Beyond the Beltway. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support. 
for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Dan Prof sitting in for Bruce Dumont on this edition of Beyond the Beltway. Thank you for joining us, and uh, thank you for joining us, including in El Paso, Texas, on KTSM 8 AM 690. Appreciate it. We were talking about uh, the mass shootings and then all of the gun control, the bans, the background checks, the buybacks, the red flag laws, all that are being proposed on Capitol Hill. And I want to get back to the, the politics of this a little bit. I mentioned this uh, notion that suburban women are driving this debate, and you have Republicans that are afraid of suburban women, you have Democrats that pander to them and instigate fear for the purposes of aggrandizing state power over the individual with respect to gun rights. That's what I would argue. And I wanted to get your take on that, Maze, particularly uh, in the black community uh, in a place like Chicago. Uh, how, how do they receive the calls for uh, handgun, uh, well, for for the bans that are being proposed now, but you know where this is going, where it's gone previously in Chicago, if not for Supreme Court decisions. You know, Chicago used to have the strictest gun laws, and they still have the strictest gun laws. Um, And there's this narrative that always, that we hear and the police are always saying, come bring us your guns and buy back guns. But I would tell you that I think what you'd be surprised to find out is how many black people are pro-gun, pro-concealed carry because of the neighborhoods that they live in. I don't think that that gets a very large voice because it would not fit the narrative of the Democratic Party. But I would tell you that yeah. we're encouraging people. There are a lot of organizations, the 761 Gun Club. You've named a few people. we got a right. person that's regular on our show, Kwesi Moa, but they are encouraging uh, black folks to go get concealed carry. What we find in Chicago and places like Illinois is that the gun narrative that of the, the violence narrative is used against us as we try to encourage people to go in to get concealed carry because they're like, oh, guns are bad and they're proliferating in your community. But black folks, when you talk to them one-on-one, they're like, hey, man, I want a gun. Um, or not I want a gun, but I believe that we should have the right to carry. Well, so so what if the Republic, what if a conservative like me came and said, Here, here's my proposition for you, Mays, and for people who are similarly situated, don't don't trust the Republican Party. There's all kinds of good reasons not to. I mean, I'm I'm a conservative by choice. I'm a Republican by necessity. I'm not super excited about it. Okay, <laughs> okay. but um, but it's better than the Marxists that you're otherwise affiliating. None with. of us want to be socialists. Well, man. exactly. So Jesus. so on so on the that issue, we've talked uh, a little bit earlier in the show about uh, school choice and educational opportunities. Now we're talking about something as fundamental as the ability to protect yourself and your family. I mean, can I come to you and say, look, I want to switch you in for some champagne socialist on the North Shore of Chicago. I, I want to switch you, bring your friends, and I'll switch them out. Uh, you know, I think it has to be more comprehensive. And I think, you know, if it was that simple, Dan, I think we probably could make something like that happen. But I think there is a, a, there's a toxic mix of social and um an economic mix that has to be addressed before something like that would happen. Um, And I think it requires some messaging and it requires some long-term relationship building. No one just, you don't just jump into bed with someone uh, who has been uh, essentially been positioned as your enemy for your entire life. Now, I think 
if, if there is an ongoing effort and we continue. I think there is an awakening going on in the black community and people are starting to say, who is this white paternalistic person from the North Shore that is projecting or speaking for my community and telling me what? But at the same time, at the same time, we still haven't heard anything from the Republican or conservative side that says, hey, you're welcome here. It's more than just issues. We may agree on issues, but there has to be a comfort level to know that at the end of the day, you're not going to throw, like, you're not going to be throwing You know what, let me, let me ask you a question, too. Uh, and this is for anybody who wants to say, why, why do you care if a politician likes you? And why do you have to like them? There are means to policy ends. I, I'm always fascinated by, well, uh, you know, I don't like this person. I don't like that person. Who cares if you like you, the, the hate has no home here. Sign waivers <laughs> clearly don't have your back. <laughs> I, I mean, if you do any sort of assessment. And so you can you say, oh, well, I don't like that guy. But he's proposing things that I know are in my interest. So I'm going with the outcomes that he's proposing that benefit me, not with somebody that I'm supposed to affiliate with because he Dan, or she looks like Dan, me. Dan, Dan, Dan. You just don't understand black politics. <laughs> okay. It is all yeah, about clearly. emotion, right? I think that what has happened for so long, and I think you see it in our churches, and black folks are, are appealed, their emotions are appealed to. So you talked about self-interest, right? And you said, hey, we have our interests. In our community, there is a, we, we have a, a, uh, a, a, a business community that is stunted um, and we have limited people of, of stature in our community. And so what has happened in our community is that the politicians have become sort of like a royalty class in our communities. Yeah. And there's and nothing so, more destructive than that. Well, I agree. And we see it. That's why when you look at our neighborhoods, they look the way that they do. Because you are now looking at people who are bestowing they feel like they are bestowing our government dollars to their friends, etc., as compared to doing the will of the people. When a black politician comes in the room, he expects that black folks will in some way bow down. When a white politician comes into a room of his constituents, he is prepared to be a servant because they all are like, we will run your butt up out of here. Conversely, a black, I mean, look at who we have in office. People die in office in our community and we can't remove them because of that same emotion. So, uh, Kristen, Kristen McCray, Chicago Tribune, you've been covering suburban and urban politics for two decades. Uh, there's a lot of suburban swing districts that are in play in, in uh, 2020. Uh, suburban communities that could decide states, that decide a presidential election. Uh, what's your take on how suburban urban politics has changed over just the, the last several years and including this against the backdrop of the topic of mass shootings and, and uh, public safety. I mean, I don't think the issue of gun control has really changed at all. Um, yeah. Mass shootings has brought it more to the forefront, Sandy Hook, of course. Um, but that has been an issue my entire lifetime. Um, the Brady Bill. I remember my yeah. dad writing checks to different organizations when I was a kid um, for gun control groups. So I don't think that's, that's a bigger issue. Um, I just think Trump has changed the landscape in all of these suburban communities. I mean, we saw in Illinois just Trump run roughshod because he's so disliked in some of these suburban communities where you saw really um, well people who are connected to their constituents, bringing home the right, you know, focus on policy issues, get their seats completely flipped to a Democrat in the suburbs for the first time. 
because there was such an anti-Trump sentiment and people were just going down the ballot and voting for Democrats up and down. So I think it's been different because of Trump. Um, as for gun control, I, I'd just be repeating myself. I don't think it's really all that different. Jason Hill, what do you... Uh what, what uh, comes to mind when you see somebody with a hate has no home here sign in their window or yard? Oh, that the biggest haters. That they themselves are inversely hating the people whose views that they oppose. So, you know, hate has no, hate has no business here is usually um, someone who belongs to, let's say, cancel culture, who belongs to a movement that takes itself to be progressive, which means that it has a very doctrinaire position on certain issues, abortion, um, uh, uh, the trans movement, uh, which, is t which is taking off in this country at an unprecedented rate, given the fact that they constitute 0.6%, not 6% of the population. So when I see hate has no home here, I see a very politically correct um, Stalinist mentality that says any dissenting viewpoint from the orthodoxy of positions that we hold to be almost axiomatic has no place here, which means that dissent and argumentation and operating on the premise that reasonable people can have reasonable disagreements has no place here. Let's see that that's as uh, that going back to what Kristen said about Trump has changed everything. I don't know if Trump changed everything or he just brought what was bubbling below the surface to the surface. He just, people are now exposed as to who they actually are. The veneer has been stripped away. That's, that's sort of more to my sense of it because a lot of these champagne socialists, these sentimental barbarians, as I call them, um, I knew them to be who they are now out in full color because of Trump prior to Trump ever arriving on the political scene. Well, I think that's true. And I'll give you one example, just in, in, in my case. The, the biggest, our, our institutions are not just domains of indoctrinations. They're also domains of, 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 of their terror cells. And I will name one organization, the Students for Justice in Palestine, financed by um, Americans uh, for Muslims, which is financed by Hamas. So you've got the Students for Justice in Palestine, which is a surrogate on campus, which wreaks all kinds of psychological and physical havoc against people who are for the state of Israel, who call Israel an apartheid genocidal state, which is a case of the big lie if there ever was one. So I think when you see a sign, hate has, hate has no place here, or something on the order of that, you're talking about people who selectively choose to look at people who are wreaking havoc on our social system, on our cultural system and siding with a cult of victimology, uh, people who have had a coercive monopoly on morality, like the Palestinians, like the growing Islamization in this country that is taking place where we're seeing Sharia law that is going to run parallel with our own constitutional law. And you have Democrats and people on the far left saying that in the name of pluralism, Sharia law should have a place here. People who think that hate has no business here are people who don't want us to talk about stuff like this, that this country is being Islamicized, for example, at an unprecedented rate. He is Jason Hill, DePaul philosophy professor. I'm Dan Propp, sitting in for Bruce Dumont on this edition of Beyond the Beltway.
Keeping in touch with family and friends or reaching public safety officials can be challenging during power outages. If telecom networks are affected by severe weather or other conditions, the FCC recommends following these guidelines. Call 911 only when necessary and limit non-emergency calls. Avoid repetitive redialing to minimize network congestion. Try texting if a call doesn't go through. Conserve battery power. Switch mobile phones and devices to power-saving modes and turn off when not in use. If evacuated, forward landline calls to your cell phone if possible. If you're using your car to charge cell phones or listen to news on the car radio, be aware that carbon monoxide emissions can be deadly in an enclosed space such as a garage. Remember, always seek shelter in dangerous conditions and follow directions from public safety officials. For more info, go to fcc.gov slash emergency. Dan Prof sitting in for Bruce Dumont on this edition of Beyond the Beltway. Thank you for joining us. The phone lines are open, 800-723-8289. And I wanted to get back to this discussion. We didn't tackle it before, but I think we should tackle it because it brings in a lot of the political discussions we've been having. And that is the 1619 project. This is the project uh, fomented by the New York Times to redefine America's founding to 1619 when, according to the scholars they've assembled, uh, African slaves were first brought to North America and sold in Virginia. And that's, and so everything is going to be force-fed through the, the, the prism of slavery in terms of American history. And this is not just the New York Times 100-page splashy one-off event. This is now being turned into a curriculum that you'll see at your kids' grade schools and high schools and obviously colleges. Uh, and so the 1619 Project, let's start with the academic. Jason Hill, uh, what, what's your reaction to the 1619 Project and the, the quality of the scholarship behind it? It's hyperbolic. First of all, I'm going to say something that's very, very politically incorrect. As I'm, thank, thank you for the trigger I'm, warning. As I want yes, to say, yes, yeah. that the role that slavery played in this country has been vastly exaggerated. The agrarian South was a death knell to the rest of the nation, right? So the role that's the, the idea that somehow this country constitutively was built by slavery is not true. Thomas Sowell has documented this, that the agrarian South operated at an economic loss for centuries, that the federal government had to give several bailouts to the agrarian South, the backward agrarian South. And so this country was born with a birth defect called slavery. And the founding fathers made a moral compromise. It was a horrible compromise. But to get the nation off the ground, they allowed slavery to take place. I think this whole issue of recasting slavery as a constitutive founding feature of America is not true. It was a part of how America was created. America inherited this from the British. But I think it's hyperbolic, and I think it's just a sort of almost salacious attempt to woo black people into thinking, again, that you're permanent victims, you'll always be victims, part of your victim status is a constitutive feature of your identity, that this aspirational identity that America caters to, where you can be anything that you aspire to, with grit, tenacity, resilience, 
honor and hard work, as many black Americans and as many immigrants have demonstrated, is outside of your reach. Mays Jackson, um, Bob Woodson makes the point about the 1619 Project, that if you look at who's profiled, uh, you don't see a lot of black heroes in American history. You see a lot of black victims, to Jason's point. And so that is, he would, Bob Woodson would argue, and I would agree, that it is driving a certain definition of black American uh, from whether it's from 1775 or 1619. So I have not read what Bob Woodson said, and I will say uh, that 1619 isn't the date. So I think when you think about, like when we discuss it in our community, we don't discuss 1619 as the date. Um, And so I think when you talk about it academically, it's a bit disingenuous, right? So that that would be where I started. Um, I do not think, however, that I can sit here and minimize the impact that slavery had on this country. And I would not do that just for the relationship to our ancestors and for the people that died. However, we none of us were there, but we know the outcomes. Um, I do think that what I what I do think is happening, though, um, and if I if I do see one benefit of this extra leftist that we're going that this world is coming to is that in this case I think there is an attempt to at least incorporate um, the black experience into history I will tell you that growing up the only time that I ever heard anything about black people and our perspective to our history was uh, the civil rights movement Rosa Parks and then during February and King Day, I would see the dogs beating everybody up and I and dogs and all of that. And I had no real sense of um, black people's participation in the history of this country. So you didn't learn about Frederick Douglass or Booker no. T. Washington? No, I did not learn about that. I learned about all of those when I got to college. Um, and so think about growing up as a, I think it is important for the self-esteem. I'm going to tell you that growing up, uh, I, I did not feel a part of the American history. I will tell you now, though, even when we think about the ADOS movement um, and what is happening, black people from America are now starting to say we want our we are part of this history. We're not trying to claim African-American. We're trying to say we're Americans. Maybe we had a different history. We were not immigrants. Right. We were not brought here. This was not like like no, Obama right. and everybody's yes. trying to make it seem. But I do think that what this symbolizes and what I what the one part that I do like about it is the fact that there is an attempt. Now, we got to get it right. And I think right now there's these rushes to hurry up and be the most politically correct and the most inclusive. But I do think that it is important for black young black children to know that. From the day that you heard about Christopher Columbus or the day you heard about, we were here as a part of that. Now, where, what role we played in it? Why start there? Why not start with black entrepreneurship? Why not start with the black middle class? Why not start with the Harlem Renaissance? Why not? Because start- that's not where our history started. If you're going to talk about where the history of the country started, yeah, I can start at the best of the story, but no, no. tell the whole story. Well, the whole story, sure, but I, mean, I think I, rather than saying why start, why why not include? I'm suggesting that you should, yeah. but I again, if if we say that 1776, if until then 1776, I heard that uh, not Crispus Attucks, who was the first guy that died in the, I can't even think of it right now, but. 
the fact that black folks are now being included from the beginning of the history of this country as being woven into it, as in not like there's this separate history, is important for the esteem and for us as we try to figure out how do we fully take in our rights and privileges being American. If you want to say, hey, um, we want you to be inclusive and we want you to stop being a victim. Well, let me know and let me talk about my history and how we got to where we are. Don't don't minimize our struggle. Let's include it and let's be proud of it and let's expand on that. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you think about that as a journalism project, uh, Kristen? So I appreciate um, alternative perspectives and that's my job is to be open-minded and to take in other perspectives. But I can't help but not separate that that was a project that was obviously very expensive. They donated a lot of reporter time and research into it. And um, it read to me, You, I think in reading it, you have to read it almost like it's, hyper, it's hyperbole. I agree with and, and you on that. It, it was like an extended magazine piece mm -hmm. that you would read in the, in the New Yorker or something. So just because it's the New York Times, you cannot disassociate the fact that this is a liberal-leaning leftist organization openly, openly, um, you know, attacking the president on a regular basis, hoping to take him out, and has kind of made it its mission to generate probably more opposition to him. And this was, it was absolutely part of that puzzle, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I, and, and I, I still, I'm not saying they shouldn't have done it. No, I read it. You it was write whatever you want. But sure. the, the question is, how, how, how do we assess it and how do we receive Through it? And by the lens. way, you know, that we keep talking that this term political correctness keeps being bandied about. You know, that, that's a Russian term. I mean, <laughs> so the idea, we say, like, I'm not being politically correct. When you're saying, I'm not being a propagandist. Good. Don't be a propagandist. Tell the truth. But when you hear people say that's not politically correct as, like, chiding you, they're saying you're not being a, a good Red, you're not being a good propagandist. I mean, the, the, what we incorporate into our language matters. Uh, and and that's why pieces like this 1619 retrospective and everything that's now flowing from it in K-12 through education matters. And, and as Emerson said, you first you pollute the language, then you pollute man. And that's exactly what's happening through the, projects like this, in my opinion. It, it, it's the double standard, though, with political correctness is just becoming so much so stark to me when we had all the Chappelle backlash um, over the Netflix series um, in someone who was really just holding a mirror to everyone's face and kind of throwing everyone in the same bucket. And yet you had at the White House Correspondents Dinner, was it two years ago, where you had a, a comedian who was basically, um, you know, called Sandra Huckabee Sanders, uh, Lydia from Handmaid's Tale, um, completely inappropriate and, and politically incorrect. And every journalist in that room was laughing. Well, I shouldn't say every. Laughing, applause. It's okay to be politically incorrect if it matches your views. But if a conservative said or did what some of the politically incorrect things are that are said within those circles, they would be run on a rail out of time. Right. It's okay. To, you know, it's, it's very much the philosophy as... Uh distilled by the great American philosopher, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Jason, <laughs> one of your colleagues, philosopher, uh, who said, look, I don't need, effectively, she said, I'm paraphrasing her, I don't have her vocabulary, uh, I don't need to be specifically correct because I'm morally correct. Now, if Donald Trump said that, though, right, <laughs> it'd be, they'd be having a fit. Look, I, I, I think, I want to get back to the 1619 very briefly, and I think the juncture at which you in history that you choose to extol a group's lineage or history is very, very well thought out. And I don't think anyone is going to get pride 
and dignity by the 1619 Project. I think black people need to be told that during the height of segregation, schools were thriving, black people were graduating at unprecedented rate with a literacy rate of 94%, that uh, the crime was nothing like it is today, that there were entrepreneurs, that there was a vast black middle class that was not dependent on government handouts, on a welfare system. I think that more than anything else is going to instill in whether you want to call it maize black Americans or African Americans, a sense of black pride, a sense me. of dignity, and a sense of we can do this. Too. Well, I mean, how, and how many people know that, to your point? How many people know that? How many people know that in the 30s, black women had a lower unemployment rate than white men? So the most oppressive, pernicious institution in American history, slavery and Jim Crow. Hi, I'm Ryan Sandberg, and I want to tell you about Miracle, the musical, inspired by the 2016 champion Chicago Cubs. It's one of the best productions I have ever seen. Now playing at the Royal George Theater. Do not miss it. Millions estimate their benefits online so they can do what they want offline. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
Dan Prof sitting in for Bruce Dumont on this edition of Beyond the Beltway. You can catch me if you're in Chicago or you have internet access on AM 560, 5 to 9 in the morning. I do the morning drive with Amy Jacobson on the Salem station here. And also want to welcome those listening to us on KXFM in St. Louis. Thank you for joining us. Um, wanted to uh, switch gears from our talk about the 1619 Project and talk a little bit about a pronouncement that was made on the Sunday, one of the Sunday talkies today by our very own Tiny Dancer, former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who's uh, really, uh, you know, he's, he's... He's terrible, man. Well, I know that. <laughs> he's terrible. I, I, can, I just need to say that. I can see your point. But um, <laughs> he's a handicapper now. You know, he's a pundit. He's part of the Democrat aristocracy, you know, the party to which you affiliate, man. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he Not said... That part. <laughs> he said the GND, the GDP-killing GDP GND, Green New Deal... Uh, is, and as well as Medicare for all, the government, former government takeover of healthcare, are way a bridge way too far for Democrats. They're essentially, uh, he didn't quite use these words, but this is where he was going. They're destroying their chances to beat Donald Trump. Do you agree with that? Yes, I think, I think the Democrats every time almost that they open their mouth, these presidential candidates, and we talk about the issues of immigration. They are killing their chances. That's another issue. That's think another too far issue. Field. I think that all of these very far-fetched ideas that are that, in some ways, to me, are very impractical to people who are dealing with everyday issues. Still, particularly in our community, in the Black community, they're like the Green New Deal. Can we get the Black New Deal? We're still trying to get ours for right now, and, and I think he is right. I'm going to tell you right now. Unless something changes drastically, I think Donald Trump gets reelected, regardless of all of the rigmarole, as much as people hate. I, again, I, when I saw all of those hands go up and people said that they were for health care, when you talk about this Green New Deal, when you talk about health care for illegal immigrants, for illegal immigrants. Right. right? And it it essentially erodes the black base. And I'm going to tell you. For whoever to win, they're gonna need not only they're gonna get ninety percent. The Democrats gonna get ninety percent of the black vote, but will they get the margins that they need? Because I think a lot of people will sit home. Uh, Kristen, um, the uh, Matt Tobias at Rolling Stone had an interesting observation, which was true, uh, had the uh, benefit of being true, which is not always the case at Rolling Stone, as you, as we know, Virginia rape case. Uh, so but it, waiting for the second half of your question. <laughs> yes. Yes. And the observation was this. The people look at Donald Trump's disapproval ratings. They say, oh, my God, his disapproval ratings are so high, like historically high. And they are high. Uh, and then Matt Tobias' point was, um, yeah, that's a core constituency of Donald Trump. Uh, there's a lot of people who disapprove of him, who voted for him in 2016, and are going to vote for him again in 2020. He's a blunt instrument. I don't, I, I don't want to be his friend. I don't want to be his next-door neighbor. But I like a lot of what he's doing, and certainly I do that do in comparison to what the other side is offering. It's very much like the Victor Davis Hanson uh, uh, op-ed this week, if not Trump, who? And that's a problem for the left, it seems to me, right now. I mean, I'm just concerned more about the numbers. Um, how many how many people, how many fewer people voted in 2016 than 2012? And if you are, if you can, if you're going to motivate all of those people who sat it out um, just out of frustration with Donald Trump, um, some of the numbers that we've seen, like in the suburbs of Chicago, where you have flipped um, constituencies, I wouldn't be that confident. Um, 
I think it's it's a but, but 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 just to, to interrupt on that point though, I, I I agree. There's been some down ballot drag for Trump. Obviously, the midterms not as big as Obama, but it was similar in direction. And there may be again in 2020. But it, he uh, Trump strikes me sort of like Obama as sort of a matter unto himself. So I may I, there may be punishment being visited down ballot. But it's not going to be visited up ballot in part because of what the choice is up ballot at well, the top. Well, I think also to your point about the poll numbers, has does anyone in the in the history of this country been battered about as much as Trump has? I'm surprised the number isn't actually higher. Yeah. I mean, you have openly reporters who cover the White House, like Acosta for CNN, pretending to be non-biased, going and charging every day at this guy. Um, I think that's what's unprecedented is that he just gets slaughtered. He can't he can't tweet, he can't not tweet. He brings a lot of it on himself, but he, this is someone who has I've never seen someone get beaten up as much as Donald Trump. So does. how do you handicap the race as we sit uh, 5 months from the Iowa caucus? I mean, I still think that someone like a Joe Biden is going to at the end of the day for people who just want to oust Trump, he's going to probably be the nominee and then you will see him come to the center. So all of these things that we're talking about free health care and and the crazy green new deal, he will make himself more attractive. And if you remember when he debated Paul Ryan in the the vice presidential debate, he actually can come across as pretty knowledgeable, um, gaff free. And if he can veer more toward that Joe Biden, yeah, a lot yeah. happens in well, eight years. You know what? Yeah, and you know, and you know what that debate showed? You're right about that debate. You know what that debate showed? How bad a debater Paul Ryan was That's in true. part too. <laughs> Jason, I think even more than the battering of Donald Trump, I think, I think whether you're for Trump or not, I'm conservative, independent. I think the reason he's going to win is because what we're seeing on the part of the Democratic Party is a wholesale engagement of social engineering comprehensively in all spheres of our life. In the last bit, do you know what Kamala Harris say in response to a question about climate change? That she intends as president to change the eating habits of America, right. to wean them from red meat, although she likes a burger herself. <laughs> this is what we're seeing in the Democratic Party, social engineering on such a massive scale. Americans don't like to be told what to do. They don't like to be lectured at. This has been Dan Prof sitting in for Bruce Dumont on this edition of Beyond the Beltway. It's been my pleasure and honor, my great friend Bruce. Thank you, Mays Jackson, WVON Radio. Thank you, Jason Hill, DePaul Philosophy Professor. Thank you, Krista McCreary, Chicago Tribune Editorial Board. Uh, and uh, live from Chicago, Dan Prof signing off for Bruce Dumont. Sandberg, and I want to tell you about Miracle, the musical, inspired by the 2016 champion Chicago Cubs. It's one of the best productions I have ever seen. Now playing at the Royal George Theater. Do not miss it. Millions estimate their benefits online. 
so they can do what they want offline. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Keeping in touch with family and friends or reaching public safety officials can be challenging during power outages. If telecom networks are affected by severe weather or other conditions, the FCC recommends following these guidelines. Call 911 only when necessary and limit non-emergency calls. Avoid repetitive redialing to minimize network congestion. Try texting if a call doesn't go through. Conserve battery power. Switch mobile phones and devices to power-saving modes and turn off when not in use. If evacuated, forward landline calls to your cell phone if possible. If you're using your car to charge cell phones or listen to news on the car radio, be aware that carbon monoxide emissions can be deadly in an enclosed space such as a garage. Remember, always seek shelter in dangerous conditions and follow directions from public safety officials. For more info, go to FCC.gov emergency. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org.